0: Psalm 122, I'll ask you all to stand and follow along with me as I read aloud Psalm 122. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem! built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. There thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions sake, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. Darren, if you want to come. Join me in praying. Father, thank you for uh, today, for the opportunity to gather uh, as your people. Uh, we recognize that uh, we are not the only church family gathered today, but scattered all over the world. Your people have been meeting, continue worship and honor you. We pray for your work to continue in all nations. In all nations, God. Uh, Thank you for Darren. I pray that you will by your spirit um, open our eyes to see truth and beauty and wonder and glory in your word. That you will empower Darren even in these moments to, uh, to preach your word faithfully. God, would you speak to us through it? We love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: Related, but that's not always the case. And I was running cross country, didn't have any time to get extra help, it was tough. And math, honestly, is kind of difficult because you know, a lot of times, like, you can use the same kind of like formula to solve one problem or maybe a different problem, but the thing is, it's like, well, this is the formula that you're using you know, you get a paperback, and problems one through three are good, but problems four through six are wrong. And they seem like the same problem, and so you use the same formula, but you didn't get the right answer. And that's kind of what makes math difficult for me. The problem is that your formula is wrong. You have to have the right kind of formula when you're doing math. And I think... The church is kind of guilty of this same sort of error. We can be guilty of the same kind of wrong thinking, but on a theological level. What I'm talking about here is theological interpretation, consistency. We've all seen it, right? The athlete posts Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, and it's not because they're in jail prison suffering, it's because for whatever reason they find basketball very difficult. They post that, that verse on their wall, or whatever. Or, you know, the person who has a sign that says John 4, 16, God is what? Love. And apparently that means you have to agree with whatever they say, even if, you know, even if it's insane. But it's not just that well-meaning people take verses out of context and come to have wacky theology. It's that occasionally Christians can arrive at a seemingly right conclusion or, or have what seems to be the right beliefs or practices but they get there by using bad methods of interpretations. In other words, they might get the right answer but by using the wrong formula. Bad math. Imagine, here's a scenario. Your MC is meeting or maybe you're at some sort of, you know, other Christian gathering. And everyone's talking, everyone's having a great time. And let's just say there's a woman named Janine. I don't know any Janines in here, but if your name is Janine, I'm sorry. And despite how hard Janine's been working, she can't make ends meet. But she started to fast and pray. And lo and behold, she came across an extra $1,000. And so in her excitement, she's, she shares this with others, and she quotes Mark 10, verse 27. With man, it's impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Now, if I have to guess, most of us would probably kind of, you know, just keep drinking our LaCroix and nodding, and, you know, we wouldn't really say anything weird. We would just say, okay, that sounds lovely. Because after all, who wants to move on somebody when they're sharing their story about how God provided for them, right? The problem is Mark 10, 27 is about salvation and the fact that it's impossible to be saved by human effort. Right. In other words, Janine got the right answer. Pray to God when you need help. But she was relying on the wrong text. She was using the wrong formula. And God cares about both errors. God cares about bad theology derived from using the verse out of context. And he cares about good theology derived from using verses out of context. He cares about both the means and the end. And so what does that have to do with Psalm 122? Well, as you're probably aware, earlier this month, the modern nation state Israel was attacked by the terrorist group Hamas and so many Christians have felt the need to weigh in on the war, on the conflict, and they've used this portion of scripture as a proof text for Christians to support Israel with an almost unwavering sort of loyalty. Now it needs to be said that regardless of where you stand on the issue, the fact is that the fighting between Israelis and Palestinians has been going on for decades. With some Israelis and some Palestinians committing terrible crimes against each other for, like I said, quite some time. And so, my job as your pastor isn't to explain the conflict, uh, nor is it to be partisan. In fact, I I wanted to pre-Salm 23, you know, my job. Stick with it. And so the truth is that the church, I believe, has been guilty of bad math when it comes to how we think about the modern day nation state Israel. And at the center of the bad theological equation are passages like this, by like Psalm 122 and other Zion songs that extol or lift up Jerusalem. But when you read, this psalm as a Christian through the lens of the gospel in light of all of God's revelation. You see that Psalm 122 was really about Jesus and his church. Maybe you do personally support Israel and think it makes political sense and if you do, that's that's okay. You have the right to do that. Just don't make Psalm 122 part of your formula because it doesn't have anything to do with that. And I'll be explaining why as I go along here. So please have your Bibles open. We are going to be going through the Bible a lot today. I hope that is okay with you guys. Amen. So let's first start by putting the psalm in its immediate context. This is Psalm 122. Okay? It's a song of the six, Which means that it was sung by uh, God's people as they traveled to Jerusalem. Which Jerusalem was and is basically on a a mountain, if you will. And as the Hebrew people would go up to Jerusalem, they'd sing these kinds of songs in anticipation of making it to the city. And this song was composed by, as you can read there in the the text, by uh, by, by David, who was the king of of Israel. Biblical history tells us that David was used by God to come city that would be home to many of God's people. So David, as he's accompanied by his friends, he goes up. He goes up to Jerusalem. And so the main point of this text in its historical context is really simple. It's that David rejoiced in, prayed for, and sought the good of God's people. If David rejoiced in, prayed for, and stop the good of God's people. That, that's what this passage is in its original context. And so I want to say, Carus, if you've been transformed by the gospel, I, I think you'll feel similarly today. You, you'll be the kind of person who loves God's people. In other words, if you've been transformed by the gospel, you will love the church. If you've been transformed by the gospel, you will love the church, God's And if the gospel has transforming you into someone who loves the church, you'll notice four things about your life. So I have four main points. Not three, so sorry. <laughs> four. Number one, you'll rejoice in the church. You'll rejoice in the church. That's what we see here. Number two, you'll worship with the church. Number three, you'll pray for the church. And lastly, you'll seek the good of the church start with the first one. Verses 1 and 2 you'll rejoice in the church. Look with me at this text. Verses 1 and 2. It says, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. David here is recounting his trip. With his friends, I love it. As they go to Jerusalem and this excitement just bubbles up in his heart. And David says here, look, I was glad when they said to me, let's go to the temple. I was glad when they said to me, let's go to Jerusalem. And why was David excited? It's not because Jerusalem, in and of itself, was some special city. It's because Jerusalem was the place where the house of the Lord was. The tabernacle, which would later on become the temple under Solomon. And the tabernacle, is important because that's where and how God chose to make his presence known. David wanted to be God's presence. It's not that David didn't believe that God was always with him or was not omnipresent or something like that. After all, he did write Psalm 139, which speaks of that. No, for David, the, the tabernacle was where God revealed his presence in a special, special way. It's where God kept the tablets that he had the the commandments on, so that way people would know how to live. The tabernacle was where sacrifices, where atonement was made, so that people would know that they were forgiven. It was where the images and the icons were kept, which pictured what heaven was like, so that people, when they saw them, would have hope. That's why David was glad that he went to Jerusalem. Now, us modern people, when we hear talk about tabernacles and temples, it sounds kind of weird to us. But ancient people, they didn't have the same issue that that we had, that we have. You see, ancient people, they knew and understood something fundamental about humans, and it's that. Worship. We're, we're desperate for worship. Ancient people understood that. And so, what you find if you survey so many different civilizations, if you survey so many different pre modern religions, you, you, you see this understanding that, that people understood humans to be created for worship and that they would find their significance and happiness in something greater than themselves. And so for many people, they found their significance in war, and so they had a god of war. For many people, they found their significance in sex and family, so they had fertility gods. For other people, it was food, so they had gods of agriculture. And at the heart of every ancient city was a temple, or priests, and others went to connect, to connect with their gods. And though it may not seem like on the surface, people today have the same kind of impulse to worship as people have always had. For some people, they worship sports. So for them, their temple is the sports complex. They can't practice or play at any gym or arena. It has to be the best one. If you worship fashion and money, your temple is the shopping mall. You can't shop at Walmart. Ew, gross. your God is comfort, then your temple is your house, and it must be kept in order at all times. If you worship your your spouse or someone else, your temple is wherever they are. You see, we all worship and we all have our gods and the temple is just the thing or the place or the circumstance that allows you to experience more deeply what you are really after. Even if it means sacrificing others' responsibilities or your own life, ever since the fall in Genesis 3, people have been trying to get the shalom that we see in this text. They've been been trying to get their way back to Eden somehow, only for a moment. And so the idea of temples and tabernacles are very relevant for us today, isn't it? Okay. So what does this have to do with my point, which is that if the gospel transforms you, you'll rejoice in the church. Everything. Everything. Because in the gospel, you know what happens? God becomes a vineyard, And he tabernacles with us. Live with me at John 1.14. Then the Word became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so this is actually telling us that Jesus is the the true temple. He's the true way to get to God the Father. But the logic of the New Testament doesn't stop here. Because it's not just that Jesus is the true temple who tabernacles among his disciples. 3 16. Do you not know that you are God's temple? And that God's spirit dwells within you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy them. For God's temple is holy. And you are that temple. In other words, church, you if you've been saved by Christ, corporately, together, we comprise of the temple. Whether you're male or female, young or old, you or Gentile, if you belong to Christ, you are a member, a stone of that temple. And we are the place where the triune God of the universe dwells. I don't know about you, but that is exciting to think that God is here. Right now. Dwelling dwelling, dwelling with us. So, church, do you feel the same as David? You see, for David and the Old Testament saints, they were excited to go to Jerusalem because the temple connected them to God. And as New Testament believers, does the thought of gathering of God's people excite you? If so, why? Why? Is it because you have a common savior and a common redemption? Or is it because you have a common political affiliation, sports team, or ethnicity? On the other hand, is the thought of church for you? Maybe you're here simply because your parents brought you, but truth be told, you'd rather be my you know, night or sleeping in. Or maybe you bring your kids or a loved one to gather. But it's not for the gospel. It's for moral formation. Because where else are you going to turn your life around? Cars, do you rejoice in the church for what it is? The dwelling place of God. Well, the gospel has transformed you, you will love the church and you'll rejoice in it. But secondly, you'll, you'll, you'll worship with the church. Secondly, you will worship with the church if you've been transformed by the gospel. We see this in verses 3 through 5. Jerusalem, built as a city that is bound firmly together to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. There, thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. In these verses, we see who went to the temple and for what purpose they went. Verse 4 shows us that the tribes went up, and they went up together, hand in hand, and they went up to give thanks. Now, this detail seems kind of insignificant, but it's really not when you understand that the tribes of Israel, they were not always buddy-buddy. There were civil wars, there, there, there was fighting, there was murder of each other. But under David's reign, there was for four seasons a real kind of unity between the people. And so as they went up, they anticipated giving thanks and celebrating festivals together. And I don't have time to get into all of the Old Testament festivals and all of that. But it's important to know that each of the festivals that were celebrated at the temple, they, they, they dramatized, they reenacted God's great acts of redemption. And so the three major feasts that all the males were required to go to each year were the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Harvest, the Feast of Booths, or Tabernacles. Each of these feasts signified how God saved the Israelites from the Egyptians. And as they celebrated these festivals, as verse 5 says, the people would have been reminded of, of David and the thrones for judgment. God, God's judgment, God's justice, His, his rule, His promised to us to bring peace and salvation through David. In church, when we gather every Sunday, we, we actually do something similar to that, don't we? We reenact God's grace act of redemption. We reenact the gospel. When we take communion, we reenact and remember how Jesus' body was broken for us, and his blood was poured out for the forgiveness of our sins, right? When we baptize someone, they go under the water, symbolizing death to themselves, in the same way that Jesus was placed in the tomb. And they come out of the water, symbolizing newness of life, in the same way that Jesus was raised from the grave. The gospel. When we listen to the word preached, we hear God's judgments and see his righteousness displayed in and as the king is proclaimed. And as this takes place, we're unified. We're unified. We're bound firmly together. All tribes, all ethnicities, all kinds of nations, bound because of Christ. And so do you worship with the church? Or is Christianity largely uh, an individual sort of endeavor for you? After all, the the communal language in the psalm is is staggering, isn't it? Verse 1, they said. Verse 2, our feet. Verse 4, the tribes. Verse 6, they be secure. Verse 8, my brothers, companions. I know at this point, many people object and say, look, I don't don't need the church to be a good person, a Christian, or even experience God. You know, I can experience Him right where I'm at, in my home, in my slippers. You know, I don't need to go to church to, to be a Christian. And you know, that's actually true. Because Christians don't go to church. Christians are the church. The question becomes, what do Christians do then? Well we gather. We gather to worship. Not so that we can be saved. We gather and worship to remind each other that we have been saved. That's what we're doing here. We're reenacting the gospel. So if the gospel has transformed you. You'll rejoice in the church. We'll worship in the church thirdly, you'll you'll pray. You'll pray for the church. Look at verses 6-8. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure to love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions sake, I will say, peace be within you. Now at this point, David, he's expressing the hope that he and God's people have for true peace or, or what's called Shalom. This is a rich, biblical word, meaning peace, fullness, restoration. Okay? And David wanted Jerusalem to be a place of shalom. David wanted Jerusalem to be a place where God's righteousness was on display. It was supposed to be a place where people could get a taste of how life was supposed to be. uh, How life was before Genesis 3. That's, That's what Jerusalem was supposed to be. And all of these festivals and celebrations, I think they they would have cultivated this sort of deep expectation and excitement for Shalom. And there were glimpses of Shalom, like I mentioned, under David's rule, and even under Solomon's, but but not for long. (laughs) David's prayer here for peace and security within Jerusalem, it was effective, it was effective, yes, but it wasn't comprehensive. David's prayer for peace was answered, but the blessings did not last for long. In fact, just a few years after pinning this psalm, David's own son rebelled against him and led an insurrection. In fact, David had to flee Jerusalem and go to war against his own sons army. It's actually really depressing, the more that you read about it. David's hope for Shalom was not actualized. And none of the kings that followed after David would do this well either. So Jerusalem didn't live out this call for peace in David's day. And this wasn't lived out in Jesus' day either. Look at Luke chapter 13. At this point, I want to just kind of shower you with some biblical text. Look with me at Luke 13, 34 through 35. This is Jesus speaking here. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? You are not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Later on in Luke 19, as Jesus drew near the city and saw it, pause. He didn't rejoice. He wept. He wept as he went up to Jerusalem. He said, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for what? They're hidden. They're they're hidden from your eyes. So we're still waiting for this prayer for shalom within God's city, aren't we? No. No. Look with me at Ephesians 2. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our Peace. Who has made us both one and has broken down his flesh in his flesh the mighty wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in his place of the two so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility and he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. You. Brothers and sisters, when the church of God lives out the gospel with humility and grace, you are getting a glimpse of Shalom. Have you thought about that? You're getting a glimpse of what life was meant to be like. I was just talking to Kurt (laughs) when we came in this morning about that. When that happens, we are mirroring, not not perfectly, no, 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 but we are mirroring what life is like in the New Jerusalem. The city that David and all the Old Testament saints looked forward to. Once again, turn with me to Scripture. Hebrews 11. It says, for he, referring to the patriarchs, but specifically Abraham, was looking forward to what? The city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. These all died in faith. This is now verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the fixed promise, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they
0: had been thinking
1: of that land from which they had gone out, And it was going to pass away. And it had. And it has. And we're now living in the real
0: Jerusalem.
1: Awaiting the perfect one to come down from heaven. So let me remind you. What made Jerusalem special was that God's temple was there. But now Christian believers are God's temple. And God dwells with his redeemed saints. And if Old Testament believers were praying for Shalom... Which only come through the Messiah, and if the Messiah Jesus has already come, then how could pray for the peace of Jerusalem mean that Christians should be supporting the modern day nation they call Israel? No, saints. This passage is an exhortation for us to pray for the church. So, do you pray for the church? Are your affections and desires tied up with the wealth and the health? The well-being of the church. I encourage you to start with the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come, right? Your will be done Honor as it is where. It is. If you want to pray for the church, I encourage you to start there. And so, let's transition to my last point. I to review. We've seen, firstly, that if you've been transformed by the gospel, you will rejoice in the church. Secondly, we've seen that if you've been transformed, you'll worship with the church. Thirdly, you will pray for the church. And lastly, you will seek the good of the church. You see this in verse 9, that you will seek the good of the church. The text says this. It says, for the sake of the house of the Lord, our God, I will seek you good. I will seek your good. The psalm ends with David um, reaffirming, really, his his commitment to the people of God. Why? Why? For the sake of God and His glory. That's why he's committed to the church. You see, David, when he was thinking properly, he understood that loving God meant loving people, especially other believers. So for David, this looked like ruling as justly as he knew how. It looked like honoring his friends who had helped him in, in a time of need. It looked like bringing the tabernacle into Jerusalem and appointing the right people, the Levites, to make sure that the offerings were done properly. For David, it looked like making sure the city was safe and secure so that other nations would not harm So what does it look like for believers today to seek the good of the church? I'll start by describing what it's not. Derek Zimmerman uh, and I, we were talking the other day, um, and he he mentioned, only the way that Derek Zimmerman can, with his kindness. uh, He mentioned that, you know, in our kind of culture, we, we really make a bad habit of scoffing just ridiculing, making fun of other people. There's this strong sort of aroma of scoffing. And I think that attitude has kind of seeped its way into into the church, and and I'm not saying, you know, cars, but I'm saying Christianity in general, especially evangelicalism here in the West. It's just there, and it often looks like hyper criticism. You know, there are discernment bloggers who make their lives work, basically calling out every so-called false teacher and denomination, and then there are people who almost unceasingly complain and lament the church. You know, they're always lamenting how bad the church is, how much the church is messed up, how screwed up we are. And there are people who are involved in, in church uh, very deeply in their church life and kind of be in leadership, but, but they find it much easier to find what's wrong with the church rather than what's going right and well with the church. And I don't mean this in any sort of sacrilegious way, but sometimes I kind of feel bad for Jesus. I mean, it's like, he died to redeem us, making us his bride, his wife, and now he has to put up with all the bad things that we say about his spouse. I mean, if people said the things about, you know, my spouse that they say about Jesus' spouse, I this morning is the reality that we find in this text. And this David isn't annoyed with God's people.
0: <laughs>
1: he loves them. His heart is for them. How much more is Christ church isn't hyper criticism. No. Seeking the good of the church is giving yourself to the church. It's giving your time, your talent, your treasure, any abilities that you might have. Here, 1 Peter 4, 8 through 11 on this. Above all, Keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers multiple sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling, as each has received a gift. And you all have received gifts. If you are in Christ, you have a gift. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. So what are your spiritual gifts? Do you know? Have you ever asked anyone? This is the first step you need to take if you want to seek the good of the church. So as I wrap up this morning, it's important to note that this is difficult. I'm not, you know, I don't have any sort of idea that this is just like magic, some sort, right? This is difficult. You know, maybe you, you truly have been transformed by the gospel. Maybe you do care for the church, but you've been hurt. Maybe you do pray for the church. You gather regularly, but it's just challenging. And if that's you, listen, I'm going to say something obvious, but something that we so often forget, especially at the heart level, Right? and it's relevant for you whether you've been a Christian for two years or 20, is this. Loving the church well requires deep sacrifice. Loving the church well requires deep sacrifice. And many people, they don't sacrificially give themselves to their church, and so they don't really get much out of it. It just has to be said. And I don't mean that with any Disrespect. But there's a sense in which there's this positive correlation between what you give to the body and what you receive from the body. And it's important to note, just in passing, that you know I don't mean that if you give yourself to the church day in and day out, somehow the church owes you some sort of platform or pedestal, right? Um, that's not what we're getting at. Because the moment you begin doing that, who are you really giving to? The church or yourself? Don't, don't forget that. Because the moment you do, things start to fall apart. That's what happened with David. He, he forgot the sacrificial giving that was required to see the church built up. You see, David, he stopped the good of, uh, of Jerusalem, and he was willing to put his life on the line, but you know what? He wasn't willing to put everything on the line. His sexuality, his lust. You know the whole thing with Bathsheba? You know, he had given so much to the people. How come he couldn't have her? Right? Solomon stopped the good of Jerusalem, but not if it meant that he couldn't have a lavish lifestyle and marry who he wanted to marry. And even the best of kings, after David and Solomon, they stopped the dinner of Jerusalem, but none of them were really able to bring Shalom. And they weren't able to bring Shalom because they weren't able to rid Jerusalem from their biggest enemy, which wasn't Babylon, which wasn't the Philistines, which wasn't the Assyrians, it wasn't the Persians. It was themselves and their own idols. Their own idols. Right. You can't give to God that which you're giving to idols. So this is why we as Christians love Jesus, isn't it? This is why we cling to his life, his death, his resurrection. It's because Jesus loved us, his church, so much that he left the heavenly city, with all of its riches, and was born into a poor family in the middle of the countryside. Jesus was glad to come to us. He was glad to come to earth and ransom his church. It's not that... that Jesus just prayed for the peace of the church, he died and became the peace that the church needs. He loved you more than he loved his own life, even the breath in his lungs. That's how much he sacrificed for you. That's how deeply he sought your good. That's how much he loved you. He died for you. Even knowing that two hours after you believed, he would still go back to sin. Wait, will your idols do that for you? I'll wait. No, they won't. They won't. This is why we love Jesus. And you know why I love the church? Because I love Jesus. And I love his people. And because when I'm in the hospital, someone will be there. Bango will show up. And the second person there next to my wife. Because I can call him. And when I need to go to the hospital, it doesn't matter if it's 3 a.m., he'll be there to watch my kids. I love the church because when I... (laughs) Finish this sermon. <laughs> I love the church because when I do something stupid, somebody will correct me in love to my face and not be like the rest of the world and do petty stuff behind my back. I love the church because people like Zach Brubaker Ruba- will, will, will text me when he, wake up, when he wakes up and he'll say, I've been praying for you before I even pray for myself. I love the church because people like Amy and Brooke teach me how to face trials with hope. I love the church because when I'm feeling down and I'm doubting, someone will come to me and remind me that, hey, Darren, you've been saved. Because Jesus loves the church and he's going to bring shalom and reconciliation through the church. I love the church. And I commend the church to you. Look, loving the church requires a deep commitment and sacrifice. Yes, it's difficult, I know. But if you've been transformed by the gospel, keep at it. Keep at it. And as you do so, the true Jerusalem will be showcased before a watching world until one day Jesus will come back, perfect shalom and bright down. Do you love the church? Have you been transformed by the gospel? Pray for you. God, we know that we have no lasting city here. That's what Hebrews 13 14 tells us. But we seek the city that is to come. And we see in Revelation that there's a new heavens and a new earth. And John, he sees the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, going for her husband. And God, you will dwell with us. And in the new heavens and new earth, there is no temple in the city, because the temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, in the land. What a beautiful thing. What a beautiful reality. Would you transform us? Would you help us to believe the gospel more deeply? Pray this in your name. Amen.